Thank you for that terrific introduction. Uh, and let me just get semi-organized here so we can do all this. First, I have to throw this switch in order to uh, escape from here without the wrath of the uh, organization here upon me. Uh, can everybody hear me now? Okay, good. Well, let's see what happens when I press a key here. See if things come up. Yes, they do. Ain't technology wonderful? This is the title view graph for our talk tonight. And uh, as Doug said, uh, I, I'm a historian for this veteran uh, uh, group. Uh, we have actually we have two groups: the 7499th Group Association uh, of the older FUDs. These are FUDs that uh, essentially flew from the late 40s to uh, 1975. And then we have another group that calls themselves the Berlin for Lunch Bunch, uh, the younger FUDs from 1976 to 1990. We are combining as we speak, and as a matter of fact, we had a reunion here just last weekend in Dayton. Uh, so let's see what it is I'm going to say. I'm interested in this myself. Let's see what I have to say for myself here. Having introduced that, that we do have this group, let me, uh, let me press on and see what we're going to be talking about. First off, you have to set the basic scene uh, for the activity. At the end of World War II, we had this, uh, the, the four major allies against Nazi Germany that are now facing each other. The Soviet Union, world's largest country, the country that, frankly, suffered the most casualties uh, during the Second World War and, and arguably suffered the most damage to its infrastructure. And, of course, uh, now particularly interested in shoring up its influence in the, uh, what we came to know as the satellite countries, Poland, East Germany, etc., uh, against the Western allies, principally the U.S., Britain, and France. Uh, in 1945-46, already the tensions were building between these two uh, entities, and a major, uh, a major confrontation was beginning to devolve, evolve. We knew very little about Soviet military capabilities, very little. And as tensions rose, we needed to find out. So it was especially important in those years, the late 40s, to find out about their real potential nuclear capability. Now this, of course, was across the USSR and across the areas it was influencing uh, so that we could cope with them if, if necessary. Uh, that's the overall picture. In Europe, especially as the two blocks now emerging were facing each other, uh, uh, it was especially uh, urgent that we collect on the forces right across from us. Here, refreshing our, our memories from 1945, is the breakdown in how we were occupying the former Nazi Germany. Remembering the Soviet zone, which eventually became the so-called German Democratic Republic, or East Germany, and we had the British and French and American zones, uh, which eventually became the uh, Federal Republic, or West Germany. Similar structure was going on in Austria. Austria had been part of the greater uh, German Reich, uh, and is now going to resume a role as an independent nation, uh, but it itself had to be occupied. Zones were set up there. In both nations, Germany and Austria, the capital cities, Berlin and Vienna respectively, uh, uh, had sectors within those cities. Uh, there were the Soviet sector, French, British, and American sectors in the cities as well. So this became, quickly became an issue in uh, east-west uh, confrontations, negotiations, etc. Uh, and let me uh, next 
we can we can discuss uh, where the different airfields that I'm going to be blathering about. I mean, talking about tonight. Uh, you can see from the map, uh, there's the Berlin Corridors and Tempelhof Airfield, which was the airfield that was supplying uh, uh, the American sector of West Berlin. There was the British airfield at Gatow for their sector and the French airfield at Tegel in its sector, uh, which is where you fly into Berlin nowadays, is into that airfield. Uh, the units I'm going to talk about in West Germany uh, started off uh, one of the American units started, whoops, nobody look. Okay. One of the uh, American units started at the airfield of Firth by Nuremberg. I haven't got it all cutified up here on the view graph, but there it is. Firth by Nuremberg before it went down to Furstenfeldbruck near Munich. Americans call it Firsty, and that's what I'll probably wind up calling it tonight. Uh, before moving on to Wiesbaden, uh, Germany, which was the headquarters for the United States Air Forces in Europe, and uh, also, we had units at Frankfurt, uh, what is now Frankfurt Civil Airport, or Rhein-Main uh, Airfield, uh, right there near Frankfurt City. Those are the air bases we're going to talk about. And here are the units we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to start with the American occupation. There were two units that became the granddaddies of covert reconnaissance in Europe at that time. 45th Recon Squadron, which was made up in 1945-46 of P-51 Mustangs rigged out for uh, overt recon. Main mission of them was to troll around uh, West Germany, taking photos, particularly in the American zone, of the bomb damage and uh, uh, for our learning purposes and also to help uh, with uh, reconstruction projects that are going to be a huge, huge effort over the next several years. The other outfit we'll talk about at the beginning as a 19th photo charting squadron, which had B-17s rigged out for, obviously, photo charting. Mentioned them both in a moment. Uh, the covert elements of those two came together in an outfit called the 7499th Squadron, Air Forces Squadron, in 1948, at the height of the Berlin airlift. As requirements, intel requirements burgeoned in the late 40s, early 50s, finally reorganized into a group headquarters, the 7499th group, with three squadrons, the 05th, 7405th, 6th, and 7th. 05th was basically the unit that would carry on the function of that 99th squadron. 06th and 07th, the 06th, uh, and I'll mention both of these in some detail in a minute. The 06th was going to be an airborne communications intelligence collection outfit. Uh, the 07th was going to be a high-altitude imagery collection outfit. Those three units... Uh, soldiered on together through the, basically through the 60s and into the early 70s before the last two were inactivated for reasons I'll discuss. And the old fifth carried on. And it, it basically cloned a second squadron, the 7580th in 1983, and together they went on to the end of the Cold War in 1990-91, as you can see. So we'll go through this in some detail and then tell a few stories while we do it. Let's look at that photo predecessor unit, the P-51 outfit. There it was at Firth in the spring 1946. We have this from a memoir of a young Army Air Forces captain named Roger Rodarmer, who by the end of his career became a major general and a major player in the peripheral reconnaissance uh, uh, business that the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, set up. But at this time, he's a young captain. He had flown A-26 Invader light bombers during World War II, but he's getting posted to this P-51 outfit. He's wondering, what the heck am I doing here? And he looks out over the airfield. There's all these 
Mustangs. Uh, squadron commander says, come with me, Sonny. They went into a hangar, and they discovered there in a hangar was an A-26 invader. You can see it on the photos here. Um, in there being worked on. And they were rigging up a low oblique camera in the nose of this A-26. And the squadron commander said, listen, Sonny, you've been brought here because of your expertise on the invader. You're going to train some, uh, some crews on flying the airplane, and we're going to be collecting reconnaissance out of an airplane that nobody knows has a reconnaissance capability. And that's because we plan to fly in the Berlin corridors. We plan to fly collection missions uh, in odd and interesting places in Europe, uh, and nobody should know about what we're up to. So Captain Rodarmer salutes, yes, sir, and he proceeds to do that very job. Now, you can see in this picture uh, the camera, the light camera uh, being uh, stowed there. It was described uh, in his uh, memoir as uh, rigged up with uh, uh, bungee cords and what passed in 1946 for duct tape. Uh, put that thing in there. Uh, but it worked. It worked just fine. Thank you very much. Second unit, predecessor unit, uh, was going to be conducting ELINT. ELINT is electronic intelligence, and uh, in the parlance of, of, uh, of intelligence people, ELINT is one half of signals intelligence. There's communications intelligence and there's electronic intelligence. ELINT is non-communication stuff, and for the purposes of this talk, that's basically radars. The other, ad the adversary's radars. To, to try and get the technical uh, uh, information about the radars, what frequencies they operate on, all the fancy words that electronic warfare officers have for the different aspects of, of uh, radar uh, emissions. Uh, target tracking, you know, surveillance radars, uh, missile guidance radars, etc. Learn all about them, and you can do major things uh, to a, a hostile country, uh, perhaps, with this material. We'll have an example or two in the talk. Okay, so having said that, this unit, photo charting unit, the det Detachment A 10th Recon Group, uh, was flying those B-17s. Okay, something happened. It's over at mission was this photo mapping. But something happened. 1946, August, flying this blue route here from Vienna down to Venice and then down to Rome was a scheduled Army Air Forces C-47 twin-engine DC-3 uh, courier aircraft. The weather was pretty rotten. It blundered into Yugoslav airspace right in this area here, and it was promptly shot down by Yugoslav fighters. Aircraft crash-landed. Everybody survived, but the Yugos uh, interned the crew. Major protests came from the U.S., uh, including uh, Secretary of State and uh, even President Truman got a hold of Tito, was in the process of saying, give our people back when, guess what happened? A second C-47 on the same route, 10 days later, along here, also blunders into Yugo airspace and is also shot down. This time, no one survives. So there are bodies over there now. Major tension between the U.S. and Yugoslavia. I suspect what happened then was that Tito, who was probably not already understanding that Joe Stalin wasn't his best friend, was said he better cozen up to the West. Next thing we know, he'd released these airmen that he had, and he even wound up paying some uh, uh, recompense to the uh, families of the survivors. But how we get into the intelligence side, USAFE headquarters were saying, how come they knew 
where our airplane was and how come they knew to shoot it down. So the call went out in the American zone. Find any ferret that you can find. Ferrets became known as EWOs or crows in my day. Uh, electronic warfare officers. They found two guys. A lieutenant, oh, eventually a fellow Lieutenant Colonel Ingvar Haugen. And in his memoirs, he discusses how he got involved in this. He was called to USAFE headquarters, told to find some gear, strap them into a couple B-17s and, and get the hang down to uh, northern Italy and fly around that area trying to figure out where, uh, what's going on, elant-wise. They did that. They discovered a former German Würzburg radar, part of their air defense system, that had been used there by the Germans as a training aid. Uh, now apparently being run either by the Yugos themselves or by <laughs> uh, Germans with the Yugos supervising, quote unquote. Uh, nevertheless, they were able to vector those fighters in on those uh, transports. Uh, USAFE answered that question with that information. And then it thought to itself, self, you know, the Soviets are beginning to deploy uh, radars. We are told we have bits and pieces of evidence that they are beginning to build up an air defense capability in East Germany. Why don't we continue this ELINT stuff? And so they did. Those two B-17s became a permanent part of, of the game in, in Central uh, Europe. And as I said, those two disparate parts from two units came together eventually into a squadron called the 7499th Squadron, Air Force Squadron, or eventually Composite Squadron, because it took two different disparate types of birds uh, under one squadron. It was officially activated 1 November 1948. It gained itself some C-47s, uh, and those were especially useful during the uh, Berlin airlift, which was going on about this time. You know, that crisis had started in June of 48. By this time, we were already beginning to fly uh, intel in the corridors, realizing you could fly in the corridors over Soviet garrison areas, ground and air. You could collect uh, uh, imagery, and if you're smart, some ELINT as well. And what, we, what they did was give these C-47s uh, airlift call signs, put them in the stream going in and out. Besides hauling some coal, they were also hauling information out of their camera systems on what the Soviets were up to. Uh, B-17s, some of which were rigged out in photo, but the ones that went into the corridors were, uh, were ELINT birds. They only flew at night. The idea was not to let the Soviets know. You had antennas sticking up out of these aircraft. Uh, it would be very obvious to a knowledgeable observer that this airplane wasn't just some VIP hauler. And thus, it would, it would do this. It would fly into Tempelhof, and it had a procedure. Uh, because you were supposed to land. If you got in the quarters, you were supposed to land uh, at an airfield in West Berlin. Their procedure was basically this. They'd go up, say, the south quarter, get to Tempelhof, or get close to Tempelhof and say, ah, Berlin control, we've just lost number two engine, and we've got to declare an emergency, request permission to fly out the center corridor uh, while we straighten ourselves out, emergency landing. So they would do that, get out of, get out of Dodge and get, get back to West Germany. Uh, they didn't fly that many missions, but that's what they had to do each time. Meanwhile, later, in, in, actually in the early 50s, C-54s began to arrive, and uh, these were specially outfitted with both photo and ELINT capability, and eventually replaced the B-17s. By 1953, the last B-17 was gone. Incidentally, there are two B-17s from this unit, right? 
from about 1946 to 1953 that are still around. And one of them was flying actively up until a, a year ago. Uh, bizarre stories, i tell, tell you about it later, but basically they got, they got sold off to, the, to a French photo charting unit, actually. And by the time they were out of gas, uh, figuratively, uh, the, the French uh, museum at Le Bourget Field took in one of them, and they've been, one of them's been on display there. The other one was been flying by an aircraft enthusiast group up until last year when the insurance money, uh, some maintenance problems got to it. But uh, that's pretty impressive that two B-17s, arguably the oldest aircraft in our entire inventory, uh, are still around. Uh, B-26 remained in the inventory into the mid and late 1950s. But that squadron did uh, continue doing its operations, and, and they moved to Wiesbaden Air Base out of First and Feldberg in the summer of 1950. That did two things, depending on your view of, of that from the squadron level. It puts you too close to USAFE headquarters, but that's what the headquarters wanted. They wanted to be, have a closer handle on this unit. Uh, the second was it puts you closer to the corridors themselves. Uh, if you saw on the map, the South Corridor is basically where Frankfurt or Wiesbaden is. Thus, that was a much more logical location. Okay, but then a few words about the corridors themselves. There's, there's a couple of interesting stories that go along with this. Okay, you've got the end of World War II. You've got the fact that on 1 July 1945, the Western Allies are going to go in and occupy their sectors in West Berlin. Uh, the Soviets grudgingly let them in by land, and they managed to set up. Okay, the next big thing was going to be the Potsdam Conference. Potsdam being a city just to the west of Berlin, as it's as it is on the map, as you can see here. Potsdam Conference was going to involve President Truman and his entourage, Prime Minister Churchill and his entourage, and Joe Stalin and his entourage. Stalin was going to come in by train, but uh, both Churchill and Truman were going to fly in. So how do you fly VIPs into Berlin uh, in this environment? Had to work out a lot of ad hoc procedures for the Soviets. They were cooperative. They uh, allowed everybody in. They set up the requisite radio beacons and all that, and, and it worked quite smoothly. Churchill and Clement Attlee, his successor prime minister, uh, and, and President Truman and company all got out of Dodge okay. But not long after that happened, this happened. July 1945, not long after the, uh, uh, the biggies had gotten out of town, the Soviets started complaining. You are not flying in the agreed quarters. Please get back into the agreed corridors. Uh, we don't like you flying around our airspace uncontrolled. U.S. and U.K. looked at each other and said, we are in the agreed corridors, darn it. And uh, this, is, this is what the U.S. and U.K. said the agreed corridors were. Now, the Soviet corridors were from Berlin out to Bremen in the British sector and to Frankfurt in the, in the American sector, uh, zone. Excuse me. Uh, the agreed corridors the Westerners thought was fly out of Berlin to Magdeburg, a large city, easy to see under VFR conditions, and then out to, uh, in this case, Hanover in the, in, the, uh, in the British area and Frankfurt in the Western area. So you can see why the confusion happened here. Now, there's no evidence from the files, which I've seen in both the U.S. and the British National Archives on this, of any attempt by the Soviets to screw over our minds. It may or may not have been... Uh, a genuine disagreement on the conditions. But out of this came the thought, well, maybe we better 
get our act together and have something we all agree on and get it down in writing. So sure enough, a conference was convened in November 1945, U.S., U.K., and the Soviet Union, uh, with some French participation was beginning, uh, to set up procedures. Interesting about the procedures. When they got down to it, you had a couple of biggies that we've heard about. Field Marshal Montgomery had uh, an oar in the pond about this, and so did a, a fellow named Field Marshal Zhukov on the Soviet side. The, there was an American two-star as the American rep, and you'd say, boy, is he overpowered. Uh, but uh, as it turned out, uh, we fundamentally uh, got what we wanted out of it, the U.S. did. But what the British proposal initially, this is Montgomery himself saying it, well, what we really ought to do is draw a north-south line down to the Soviet zone through Berlin like this, and allies could fly anywhere in the west that they wanted in order to get to Berlin. You can imagine what the Soviet reaction to that was. Zhukov said it in so many words. He says, we can't accept that. We can't have you flying all over our, zo our zone observing our troops. And I'd like to think that the U.S. and U.K. kind of looked at each other and maybe nudged each other under the table and said, that's an interesting idea. Uh, but anyway, that was rejected. Zhukov had a counterproposal, too. And that proposal was to, uh, if, if we're going to have corridors coming into Berlin for your convenience, why don't we have corridors in West Germany uh, going into the American and British zone for our convenience uh, and going back and forth for, for our air? That was rejected by the Allies. They don't want any of that stuff going on. Uh, so the final agreement was written and was signed in November 1945. And here are the basics about it. There are the corridors, as was agreed to in writing, written agreement. They were 20 statute miles wide, 20 statute miles in radius for the Berlin Circle to give you ample room to do your, especially your landing uh, procedures into the airfields in the West. And, uh, by the way, they used statute miles because Field Marshal Montgomery, being a good ground forces commander and a Brit, said it must be proper miles, British miles. So, yes, sir, uh, statute miles. Uh, it always bugged me when we were in there. Why is it statute? Well, that's the reason. Uh, when I say an imposed maximum altitude of 10,000 feet, it wasn't imposed early on. In fact, the British, for example, rotated fighter squadrons in and out of their airfield in their, in their sector, including during the Berlin airlift. Uh, but uh, by the high tensions of the 1950s, the Soviets said, okay, 10,000 feet, and that's it. I found in those files reference to 10,000 feet as having been proposed in a paper, but it never made it to the written agreement. So we Westerners were saying, no, no, we can fly over 10,000. The Soviets say, yet, you have to stay at 10,000. It became a big enough issue that in 1959, when the U.S. Air Force was introducing the C-130 airlifter, uh, into the theater here, and we tried to send a, a, a several flights of genuine airlift 130s into Berlin by flying high altitude and then doing a, a jet descent and approach. Uh, the Soviets were all over that aircraft, uh, and it was getting quite dangerous, so we quietly went along with a 10,000-foot altitude. Despite that, from that altitude, you could still get very good coverage of uh, targets in eastern Germany, and I'll show you later on a slide what that looked like. Uh, so let's press on, having known that. Okay, lots and lots of missions flown, and then we had uh, one fatal crash, among others. The picture on the left is not of an aircraft accident, post-accident flyby. It was just a young lieutenant in the squadron who died in an automobile accident. They had a funeral at the base chapel at Wiesbaden, and they had a flyby. 
But being an aviation guy, I just couldn't resist having this photo in the briefing. Sorry about that. Seeing B-26s and B-17s in the formation, can't beat that stuff. That must have been one, one great sight. Anyway, break, break. Uh, uh, in 1952, again, we have a pairing of two, two losses. In August 1952, early, about the first or so, uh, we had a mission into the Alps of western Austria with a, with a B-26, going low level in some valleys, taking pictures of bridges. Now, if the Soviets ever attacked through that area, we'd try to figure out how to drop the bridges. This was one reason for that imagery. Aircraft got into a valley it couldn't get out of. The pilot was new in the B-26 and didn't have his power up and uh, pancake on the high slope of this valley trying to get out. Everybody survived that. Uh, I, I managed to interview the navigator before he passed on from totally other causes just a few years ago. Dramatic story there. However, six days later, we did lose one with a loss of life. An RB-26 flying out of Wiesbaden Air Base, taking off to the west. Lost number one engine, it burst into flames on takeoff, and the pilot had little choice. He, he automatically was going left anyway. There's the Rhine River, there's the city of Mainz. He managed to put it down between two bridges, you can see one of them here, and pancaked into the Rhine River. Uh, he and the navigator escaped, uh, but the two uh, photographers in the Bombay drowned. So that was our first two fatal uh, losses. Uh, in this game was, was that particular uh, that particular loss. It shook the squadron some, of course, uh, but then you press on. Then comes this program here, and this begins a totally new epic in the game of uh, reconnaissance in Europe. By 1952, Sink Yusefi was saying, you know, these airplanes I got, B-17, C-54s, and so on, are collecting information, but I need a high-altitude bird. I need it, and I need it fast. He sent in a requirement to Air Force Headquarters. General Vandenberg, who was uh, chief of staff at the time, put together a quick group of people in his acquisition and S&T world at the Pentagon and said, what do we do about this? We need to get it done fast. Out of that meeting and subsequent uh, paperwork flying back and forth was created a special program office to cut, uh, to cut uh, red tape to... Uh, to organize as quickly as possible, find special ways to get equipment, get it modified, get an aircraft type, and get it modified to take the equipment, get it put together, glued together if necessary, and put out to the field. What they did was choose this high-resolution camera, a 240-inch oblique. You can see it in that photo on the right-hand side. Incidentally, the, the carcass of that camera exists out here on the floor of the museum under the wing of the B-36. There's a reason for that. This was intended for a B-36, this camera system. And uh, you could see a B-36 could haul this thing. Uh, and it would, it would give you splendid high-resolution photography from a good high altitude. However, comma, uh, the 36 was already having some problems, and it was not going to be around much anymore in the inventory once the B-52 came along. So it was quickly decided, use that camera, plug it into something. And when the something happened to be a C-97 new transport aircraft, it was quickly realized that, A, you couldn't put a B-36 in the, in the Berlin corridors, <laughs> and B, you couldn't land at a Tempelhof, not without a total disaster happening. Uh, you didn't want the Soviets to collect the, that, uh, the stuff. 
And, uh, and you didn't want it flying the east-west German border either, because that would be perhaps too provocative. And this is part of a game at this time to try and ease tensions by having a less provocative aircraft. So the C-97 was an obvious choice. They fitted that camera into the system, and they got it fielded by 1953, about a year. And the outfit that did this went on to other, uh, other requirements of this nature. And it is presently under the name of Big Safari. Now, Big Safari is located here at Wright-Patterson. It was spun out of the uh, RDT&E uh, world and the Air Materiel uh, Command world of the time and has, been, has, has gone on doing these kinds of projects since this one. This was the first one. These kind of projects for the Air Force, you'll see more mentions of this. Virtually every airplane type I'm going to talk about from now on was modified and put into the field by the Big Safari, also maintained with their overall picture. Uh, Safari, I can't say enough good about it. It's just a terrific uh, outfit. It has been doing things not only in the recon game, but in other uh, high-priority modification projects that have to, had to do with uh, command and control aircraft, ECM aircraft, uh, super whoopy VIP aircraft, on into the modern world. Uh, in fact, it got into the drone business in the 1960s. And uh, the drones you see operational now in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere are a result of Big Safari uh, program management uh, going on. So thank you, folks, from that outfit. Anyway, back to this outfit. The airplane is deployed to the 99th Squadron in 1953 and immediately begins flying out of Rhine-Main Airfield uh, on the east-west German border uh, to altitudes over 30,000 feet. This is un an unpressurized aircraft, uh, and uh, it required a lot of the camera system required a lot of hands-on maintenance at 30 plus thousand feet in a European winter. Think about all that fun and games uh, that you have to go through as a crew member. But it produced it produced some very high quality imagery love to see some, but haven't found it yet, and, uh, and was, as I say, the first uh, of many fantastic aircraft that we had. So that went on. Okay, here comes the uh, time in 1955 when we had to organize to, to handle requirements that were burgeoning as the Cold War deepened in intensity. Group headquarters was built at, uh, was, was set up at Wiesbaden Air Base, close to uh, USAFE headquarters. Uh, and the three squadrons are set up. The 05th was the successor of the 99th Squadron doing the, let's call it, low-altitude, low-level imagery, photography, and ELIN. The 06, communications intelligence, and the 07th, conducting high-altitude imagery. I'll go through the 06 and the 07th first, and then, con and then conclude the unit uh, march, if you will, uh, with the 05th Squadron, because that lasted the longest. 7406 Support Squadron. There's its mission. Conduct with the Air Force Security Service Airborne Comet Reconnaissance, Communications Intelligence. Uh, what you had was two, basically two separate crews on board that airplane. The front enders were the pilots, navigators, flight engineers, you know, the basic crew of the basic airplane. Uh, what you had in the back were Air Force Security Service uh, intel collectors, linguists, people who knew the languages that they were listening to and recording. And they were doing instant analysis in some cases. And over time, these people got even better. Uh, it's a fantastic uh, capability that we finally developed. Uh, and of course, this command was not the only one that had it. Uh, SAC was a great consumer of comment people from 
Air Force Security Service as it did its own collection, as did the, the, the unit in the Pacific that uh, was sister units to, the, to these here. Um, the backenders were called sailors. It was one of those cute names to cover who they were. And the uh, senior NCO head of the crew in the back was called the admiral. So uh, there's the admiral and there's the sailors. They were not supposed to know, uh, the front end was not supposed to know what the back end was up to. It was that secure. And that happened through most of the Cold War, if not all, that the front end was not supposed to have had a clue about what those guys were doing in the back. And uh, basically, if the admiral called up and said, okay, continue this orbit that you're on for at least another 30 minutes, the front end crew was supposed to say, yes, sir, and they did it. I mean, the admiral rules. Uh, and that's because they picked up some signal from some particular site, and they wanted to work it as long as they could. That's the way it worked. This has obvious crew coordination problems uh, uh, attached to it. Uh, overall, uh, of course, the first airplane they were supposed to get were uh, old SAC RB-50s, the B-50 bomber recon version thereof. SAC had been flying these for several years and had pretty much uh, beaten them not quite to death. But it took a while for them to get over here from the modification yards in the States and, and to get operational enough so that they, they could actually make crews to the aircraft and actually fly missions. It wasn't until a year and a half after the squadron was set up that they were able to fly their first productive operational mission, January 1957. The uh, squadron did fly. You can see the routes there in the Baltic uh, on the east-west German border in the Adriatic. Uh, going down to Athens, Greece was a major uh, location for TDYs where they could work targets like the Adriatic, like the Aegean Sea, out of uh, Adana or the name of the air base we all worked with was called Insulik, uh, right there in southern Turkey. And you can see the routes into the Black Sea and up along the east-west, uh, along the Turkish border with Soviet Armenia. There was, there was high interest in this area. And if the comms were right, you could pick up some scattered communications intelligence on activity in this area. For one thing, uh, it was an area where uh, uh, the new Soviet ballistic missiles were being tested. Uh, this is, of course, the number one priority uh, for our uh, intel agencies and, and for customers like the president. So uh, these RB-50s were flying those routes. Uh, now, all along it had been decided those 50s were interim aircraft and that the new, brand new troop carrier C-130 was going to be the platform of the immediate future. So beginning in 57 and, and into 58, we were gradually modifying some of the first uh, C-130s into uh, uh, comet collection birds. There's a picture of one there uh, coming in to, uh, to land, uh, and you can see how much it looks like a normal C-130. That's what it's supposed to look like. So the training began, and they began to fly missions uh, not only along the border with the C-130s, but uh, also uh, TDYs to insulate. However, something happened. To September 1958, one of the first C-130s to deploy down to Insulate uh, to do a mission with an experienced RV-50 crew aboard uh, was to, supposed to fly that route. You can see it in black on the, on, the, on the view graph here. Fly out of here, straight line up to Trabzon here where there was a radio beacon. Turn right and fly this route in this area, collecting on the bad guys over here. What happened that day, it actually flew this route here, the dashed red line, got too far, turned too late, 
blundered into Soviet Armenia and was promptly shot down by patrolling MiG fighters. Uh, it was traumatic as hell. There were six front-enders on board. There were 11 of those security service guys that were, that were lost. And that became a major crisis, again, between the U.S. and the USSR. We knew from some sources in Turkey and our own ground-based sources that the Soviets had shot it down. So we go to the Soviets and said, could you, could you tell us what happened to our C-130? We lost the 130 uh, over uh, in the Turkish area. Soviets said, we know nothing. We know nothing. We haven't heard about what, what you call a C-130. They stonewalled us. Uh, U.S. gets more uppity. Soviets get uppity. Finally, the U.S. takes it to the United Nations. And in front of God and everybody, they played the tapes of the Soviet ground controllers and fighters talking about the shoot-down. That embarrassed the hell out of the USSR. And uh, finally, the Soviets admitted it, yes. And they turned over six bodies, which happened to be the front-enders. And uh, we said, well, there's more on board that airplane. Well, we know nothing. We can't find any more people or anything like that. So we had to be content with that for the rest of the Cold War. And immediately, those of us who flew in the Air Force at this time and throughout the Cold War were told, look out at, for this area. The Soviets are meekening, most likely are meekening. Meekening means that they had a radio beacon, which eventually they did have up in this area, that was broadcasting on the same frequency as the Trabzon beacon. And they were luring us off course. Well... Uh, we were all briefed about that, to be real careful in this area. And I can remember the first time in there flying, what I was flying, what would it have been? Um, uh, it was a KB-50 tanker being, you know, my eyes are big. Let's make damn sure I can see this lake uh, van down here and make sure my radar is in good shape. Anyway, long story, not so long, is that the Cold War finally ends and the Soviets and the now, uh, excuse me, the U.S. and the now friendly Russians uh, get together on several levels. One of them is a joint U.S.-Russian effort to try and figure out what actually happened in all of these Cold War shootdowns. There was, a, there was quite a few of them. Um, Sixteen of them were reconnaissance-related, but there were a lot of others where people blundered across borders and were lost. Uh, and this commission is still technically alive today. But in the early mid-90s, uh, the U.S. and the Russians and the newly independent Armenia, with the cooperation of the newly independent Ukrainians, got together and went to the scene. And they found Armenians who had seen the shootdown uh, from their village. And that, uh, that was a major plus. They took this commission to the site of the shootdown. They found bits and pieces of the aircraft, some of them being used for chicken coops and that sort of thing. And they found a few bone fragments of those other people. Uh, and they were able to identify through DNA, as it was in the early 90s, of a few of those folks. Uh, so that was, that was it. Um, now, of the original six, two of them are buried at Arlington Cemetery, Washington area, D.C. Of, the, of these 11, uh, there was not enough together to, to say with authority, these belong to Airman this and these belong to Airman that. So it was finally decided to bury them in a common grave at our Lincoln Cemetery, not that far from where the original six were buried. Very impressive when you go there. Now, another thing that happened was while this commission was in place in Armenia, 
a, a man walked up and said, excuse me, I'd like to be a part of this. Uh, I, uh, when I was 14 years old, I saw the shoot down, and I'm from the village of so-and-so over here. And they say, oh, tell us more. So he told us more. And it turned out he said, I am a sculptor, and I would like to make a memorial to your crew. And so he did. And that memorial is standing on the site of the shoot-down where that crash took place. He said, I would like to make another one, and I would like to have it someplace in the United States where you, you could also remember this crew. So they did. And it's parked over here in the memorial garden here at the Air, at the Air Museum. So... Uh, Check it out when you can. Very, very impressive. It's a twin thing. There's the Armenian one in Armenian language with some American, uh, English words on it. Then there's an explanatory one uh, right next to it. Very impressive. Okay. What, what happened to this? I don't want to spend all night on this, but it, it's, it's, it's a controversial story. Were the Soviets actually meekening? What was the crew like? Turned out the crew had, as I said, flown RB-50s on this route. The navigators on board knew about the radio beacon business. They knew that the beacon up there at Batumi did operate on the same frequency. They knew that the radio beacon at Trabzon, like all radio beacons in the West, had a three-digit code with it, TRB or whatever it was. Uh, and that the Soviet beacon didn't have any code on it, just operated at the same frequency. So did the navigator get careless? Maybe. We don't know. Uh, there's a book out, and I highly recommend if you can find it. It's not in the bookstore here, unfortunately. In fact, it's, it's out of print. It's called The Price of Vigilance by two men, Larry Tart and something Shields. But try Larry Tart, T-A-R-T, when you Google it, in whatever site you use, uh, Amazon.com or uh, abebooks.com, which I use a lot. That's got all kinds of squirrely bookstores all over that deal in things military, among other things. Anyway. You can find copies of it out there. It concentrates on this topic, but it reveals a lot. One of the first things I read that revealed a lot in the unclassified world about, about the uh, signals intelligence collection operations worldwide. And he had it cleared by NSA. So, fairly legitimate what he says in there. Uh, he concludes that it was most likely a blunder on the crew's part and or a mix of problems with the airplane. And when it flew down from Rhine Mine to Insulate, Turkey, the day before, the radar was written up as having a problem and it wasn't operating. Um, and the maintenance crew signed it off as being operational, so they launched the mission. Did the radar go out at the wrong time? Uh, we were talking about this just before I talk, and gee, maybe they should have aborted and got to hang back to Insulate. Uh, they didn't. And uh, so there's still a mystery about this thing. Still a mystery. But find that book and read it. It's very educational about this game. Now, the 06 couldn't shut down forever. It had a mission to do, and it flew on with its uh, uh, security service back-enders. The Insulate TDYs resumed in November, you know, two months later, and went on from there for the longest time, flying in the Black Sea, flying on that border, that same border where their uh, brothers had been shot down. Uh, and finally, those missions ceased on December 1965, and I'll have a reason for that later in the talk. The tasking expanded over time. Uh, first off, from Insulik, uh, we, we deployed some of these 130s to then-friendly Iran and flew out of Tehran against the, so uh, the Soviet uh, southern area right around in here, which is, again, rife with uh, top targets 
and even a few missions in early 1962 against a place called Afghanistan. Uh, Soviets were increasing their influence, and we wanted to sample that environment, and we did. Uh, missions beginning in the mid-60s out of Athens flew in the eastern Mediterranean on the routes that you can see here in the, during the... Uh, during the Arab-Israeli War of June 1967, the unit was especially stretched hard. And I'll show you one of the reasons why in a minute. They were, they were told to fly 24 hours a day on those particular routes opposite uh, the Israelis and the uh, Syrians and Egyptians, etc. Uh, they just flat couldn't do it. Uh, the Navy came in with the C-121s to cover that third shift, and we got the job done. Uh, in 1969, 1970, uh, other events took place. Qaddafi came to power in Libya in 1969, and by 70, 71, 72, he's getting quite nasty, and uh, he required being watched. Thus, that started to happen. Then came the October 73 Arab-Israeli War, and once again, the 06 was heavily tasked to fly these missions at usually about 25, 30,000 feet altitude, something about that, uh, about that to collect on airborne comments. Okay, here's one of the reasons they were so stretched. Earlier in 1967, in February, as a matter of fact, they were, this unit was tasked to send two crews, excuse me, two aircraft, C-130s, and four crews to Yokota, Japan, to reinforce their sister unit, which was suddenly being occupied by activity in Southeast Asia. The Vietnam War was heated up, and we desperately needed airborne combat. Now, what that unit had been doing was collecting against the Soviet uh, area here, Soviet Siberia, Vladivostok in particular, uh, along the Sakhalin Islands, the Kuril Islands off to, uh, northeast of Japan, and of course North Korea, good old North Korea, and Communist China. Those are, those are its main tasking areas. But then with the Southeast Asia War, oops, guess what their primary job became? Take the 06, get it out to uh, Yokota to help relieve the pressure. That happened not long before the Arab-Israeli War. So you can see why this squadron was really tasked hard at this time. But they did the job. They got the collection done that was necessary. After all that took place, uh, something else started to happen, which was actually a relief. Uh, SAC was gradually getting RC-135, you know, 707 equivalent, airborne uh, Comet and ELINT collecting aircraft into their inventory. They were able to expand their collection operations into areas formerly done by USAFI and by PACAF and the, and the component units. So in the early 70s, the missions in the Baltic had ceased and to a large extent on the east-west German border. So they could concentrate more on what was going on in the Mediterranean. As you can see, nearly all the operational flights were going out of Athens. In fact, the security service guys went PCS down there. Uh, the 06 still was uh, PCS at Rhine Mine, but increasingly doing their TDYs out of Athens. Flying those routes in the Eastern Med, Central Med off of Libya, and as Algeria turned not very friendly, uh, we were flying missions off of the Algerian coast as well. Again, at those altitudes, looking for air defense information, other kinds of combat information. Qadhafi got more and more hostile. He had decided, because he was Qaddafi, and he was in charge in Libya, he decided that the Gulf of Sirte here was not international waters, and the airspace over it was not international airspace. This was all his, and he so proclaimed to the world. 
The United States, NATO, and other uh, Westerners uh, said, no, it's international waters. And so we put aircraft into there to assert our rights to fly in there. We put Navy ships in there to assert the rights to fly, uh, to, to uh, sail there. And we kept collecting information on, uh, on the Libyans. Libyans were getting armed with some interesting aircraft, including air defense fighters. And uh, the hostility level was gradually increasing. So the back enders of the, of the C-130 were among the main collectors on this increasingly hostile level. You were getting comms about possibly shooting down, uh, escort the bad guy, and uh, if we tell you, you know, shoot it down. So that got real tense. Uh, one day, one, yeah, one day, 21 March 1973, uh, came the breaking point when the controller told the Libyan fighters, shoot it down now. So the fighters converged. The admiral in the back of the aircraft, whose guys had picked up this conversation, says to the front end, dive, dive, dive. And I suspect the aircraft commander might have said, we're not a submarine. Well, yeah, basically shut up and get this airplane down. And so he obediently did his, did his dive. Uh, one person at our reunion last weekend told me that uh, it approached the critical Mach in the 130 before they pulled out into a cloud layer. They escaped, got back, and reported uh, what went on. Uh, it was uh, a major, you know, could have been another major loss for the 06. But uh, it, ke it kept trolling. As the 135s arrived, though, finally it looked like the 06's uh, mission had run out. 135 could fly higher, could fly faster, and, and was a bigger airplane, uh, so you could jam more collection equipment on it. So it made logical sense for Comet and, and for Elon eventually uh, to cede uh, uh, those missions to SAC and its 135s. Then finally, in June 1974, the 06 uh, was inactivated, having done a darn fine job for almost 20 years. The 07th Squadron was based at Rhine Mine uh, at this time, and it was, its job was high-altitude imagery. What were they going to use? These are the two platforms that were being used, and these are the program names for those two platforms. Slick Chick for a reconnaissance version of the F-100 fighter, and Heartthrob for the recon version of the B-57 bomber, which was itself an Americanized uh, British Canberra light bomber. Some of you may remember those birds. Uh, for sure, right? <laughs> and uh, the RB-57, well, I'll go into it in a minute here. The Slitchick RF-100s, some of the first 100s off the production line, were quickly grabbed and modified. Notice the bulge under the cockpit area, and that's where the cameras were. Also, the sighting equipment. I'm told the pilot had to straddle that like he was riding a horse, but he had it right in front of him, uh, sighting gear with, with mirrors that gave you a vertical view so they could line up over an imagery target, get it shot, move on. Uh, and that's basically what it did uh, for uh, about mid-1955 through mid-1956. Flying at 50,000 feet plus uh, at that combat radius you can see deployed there, uh, covering most of East Germany, Western Czechoslovakia, etc. If they deployed down to First and Feldbruck, they could extend that radius to cover uh, more of Czecho and also uh, getting into Poland. This was interesting. For both of these programs, flying these missions, the very first ones, were extremely productive, not only in the sense of collecting the photography from this huge altitude, if the weather allowed you, but because it tickled the Soviet air defense system. They tracked these aircraft, although we didn't think they could at the time. That's one of the things we learned. Oops, they're that good that they can track these airplanes. 
B, they, they didn't have anything to, to shoot the airplanes down. But they, that also told us a lot, both ELINT and COMMENT, about their air defense system. Radars we didn't know about came up. Communications links we didn't know about came up. So this was a great collection for both ground-based and air-based uh, air aircraft in the comment world. So this was very productive. Uh, side story, a guy from this unit, when he arrived with his slick chicks, discovered that he, the 100 guys, of course, they landed, and they quickly taxied to the far end of the airfield into a hangar way down there. And uh, we were told to shut up and don't talk to anybody in the club. Of course, the 86 fighter jocks were just all over them when they found them. What are they like? Is this airplanes we're going to get? Because the 100 was the dream machine coming out on the pipe. And uh, these guys are supposed to shut up and say, we know nothing. You know, that line. Uh, and they basically did, I am told. Okay. But notice the program ends in 1956, uh, the overflight part of it anyway, the Eastern Bloc overflight program. But that is finally inactivated in 1958 because they kept it around to do occasional missions in the West uh, over Spain, for one thing, as, as the U.S. was establishing airfields down there. Uh, the heartthrob program with its RB-57s, specially modified slick RB-57As. As a navigator, I am somewhat offended by the fact they took the navigator out of these airplanes in order to lighten the load. Who needs another 200 pounds of a frappin' navigator? I am personally offended. But, hey, you do these things. Uh, they, I guess the rationale was even a pilot could navigate in clear weather forever, you know, when the visibility is forever, because that's the only time they'd launch. And you, know, you, you could see through your, through your apparatus where you are. So it, it worked. It worked. And uh, six of these aircraft flew uh, about 19 missions that we know about. Uh, and you can see the combat radius and the altitudes there, much higher than the slick chicks and covering most of Poland, not that far. Beautiful program. Uh, it ceased uh, in 1956 as well. There, there were some of these same aircraft deployed in the Pacific. They did missions there, and, uh, uh, but it, it ended by late 1956. And the project again in 59, like the Slick Chick, uh, ended and uh, the aircraft redeployed. Now, the 07th didn't go away when that took place because there was still a peripheral mission to be done with these high-altitude birds. First off, you see the top where it says sharp cut peripheral. That was a RB-57A that was specially modified to do peripheral re recon along the border here at, uh, at al altitudes in the, in the 60,000 area. Sharp cut took that huge camera, that Boston camera, the, the, the technicians were able to take that and through the miracle of mirrors, able to shrink that basic camera with a lot of effort down be able to fit in a B-57 Bombay. I don't know how they did it, what they did, and they were able to use it on the border from those, those extreme altitudes. Uh, this, is an, this aircraft, the Sharp Cut, exists today. It is out at Hill Air Force Base, Utah, in their collection inside, being very well taken care of, I am told. Haven't seen it since we first saw the curator over, that, uh, over there that it was this airplane. It was a Sharp Cut peripheral. We provided some data from our organization, and I'm told that they've got it displayed there at Hill Air Force Base. Check out that museum when you get a chance. Uh, now, the A models, as I say, went away, and they were replaced by the D model RB-57s with those humongous wings. You can see it right there in that picture. That increases lift and carrying capability, and they were used happily along the borders, as shown in this, in this uh, map, uh, up until 1964. But in that year, the... Uh, 
the wing spars started acting up. On some of the aircraft in the States, they started losing a few of these birds. And it was discovered there were cracks in those wings. They weren't engineered well enough, apparently. And so they had to ground the fleet. Uh, it was okay, basically, because the F model RV-57 was coming along. And you can see a picture of it right down here. Uh, had an even more bizarre wing and a higher, uh, uh, higher and more powerful uh, uh, engines, including auxiliary jets, besides the main ones. You can see one poking out from the wing there uh, to get another increment of altitude out of the bird. And they flew the borders on those routes right up until uh, 1968, until the unit was deactivated. Now, we lost one of them, 14th of December, 1965, and you can see where it was in the Black Sea, in this location here. Aircraft was launched out of Insulik and was going to fly up into the Black Sea and fly missions here. I've seen an article which talked about possibly they were doing telemetry against uh, Soviet missile tests, but I can't back that up with anything official. Uh, but that's what it was supposed to do. But something happened to the bird. There was no evidence in signals intelligence, either ELIT or comment, no evidence from uh, Turkish or U.S. radars in Turkey uh, of, of a Soviet involvement in the loss of the airplane. No fighters came out that we know of. Uh, the air defense possibilities from the SAM sites in the, in the uh, uh, area along that Soviet coast uh, couldn't reach out that far. Uh, the presumption still remains that it was an operational loss, that something happened in the airplane. Canopy cracked, and at 70,000 feet, you know, wouldn't have time to say even Mayday. Uh, so it was a quick loss. Pieces of the aircraft were found at sea in about that location, and uh, that's, how we, that's how the accident report reads, that location there. Uh, both Soviet ships and Turkish ships got to the scene about the same time, started madly collecting pieces. Uh, there's still people out there that firmly believe the Soviets did this shoot-down, uh, but again, it's one of those mysteries, still a mystery, uh, what happened there. As a result of that shoot-down, though, the Turkish government, who had been hounded by the Soviets for several years about these evil Americans using their air base and using Turkish airspace to, to uh, collect on, their, on, their, uh, on, the, on the nice, peaceful Soviets, Turkish government finally said, look, I think you better stop using our airbase for these missions. I remember flying in in October, November of 65, and even then there were some tensions up. This is in a C-97, and we were going to fly some ELIT in the Black Sea. And uh, we had RB-47s flying there at that time, and all of that stopped. Fundamentally, that wasn't a huge loss to us, fundamentally, because by this time our satellite reconnaissance capability, both photography and, and electronic uh, signals communication uh, and intelligence uh, were beginning to pick up the load from these peripheral units. So it wasn't a huge loss to us, and in the interest of keeping the Turks on our side, uh, we did uh, cease recon in that area. And eventually the unit, the 07th unit, was finally inactivated in 1969. Uh, it had produced uh, lots and lots of great imagery on the tracks that you can see here. The photo in the upper right, by the way, was done by a German civilian photographer on the approach to Rhine Mine Air Base on an air aircraft coming in for landing. Now on to the 7405th Support Squadron, uh, the one that took over from the 99th Squadron uh, in uh, 1955. I'm going to talk first about the ELINT mission, the Electronic Intelligence mission, and then we'll go on to the imagery. ELINT mission, uh, A flight of the 7405th was that outfit, and this is the one I flew in 
was this mission here. They had two specialized C-97s, and notice I call them overt because they couldn't be anything other than some sort of weird collection. There's a tub under here. It looked like a canoe attached under the bottom, like you're going on vacation, except you should have it on the top if that's the case. Uh, various antenna along the top. Two of those aircraft, we flew peripheral missions in the uh, Baltic on the east-west German border, uh, Adriatic, etc. cetera, uh, and you can see the routes here uh, on the map. Uh, a lot like the 06's aircraft. In fact, I dare say, we partnered in a very quiet way on these missions in, in some of the areas, the two squadrons. The, uh, and, they, and they flew missions uh, up through 1969. But then again, SAC-135s took over the peripheral mission of these birds, and the birds went on to other, other uh, missions. One of the photo C-97s that we got at about the same time also had some EVO positions, electronic warfare positions, uh, in the aircraft specifically so we could do that kind of collection in the Berlin corridors and not look like we were uh, collectors. And in fact, the, the EVOs had positions down in this part of the Stratocruiser here. Anybody in the audience ever fly a Stratocruiser airliner? I haven't found anybody yet, but in the late 50s, and was there a hand? Okay, uh, do you remember that there was a bar in that part of the Stratocruiser? It was a small spiral staircase down to a little bar. So we always joked that the EWOs down there were still sniffing the fumes from the, uh, from the bar on the civilian aircraft. Actually, these were converted tankers, so these are sack fumes. Anyway, the aircraft, we had, we had two of these dedicated uh, photo C-97s that flew in the Berlin corridors as well as on the east-west German border taking uh, uh, photography. Eventually, as I said, the peripheral event ceased in 69 and the mission was ceded to SAC RC-135s. I throw this in uh, here as an example of the kind of collection you could do in a uh, potentially harassful environment. This is a painting of an incident I, took, I, I was on the scene for. Well, one of our C-97s up in the Baltic, 25,000 feet, flying along, was intercepted by two Soviet MiG-17s out of a base in Estonia called Vyanode. Uh, they came out like they often did, flying off the right wing between us and their homeland, as if in a signal to tell us, don't fly over our airspace. We're here to shoot you down. And my job as a straight navigator was to say, yes, sir, I'm on my track, and I'm going to be a good little person and we're going to fly, but we're going to, we didn't say this, of course, we're going to collect as much as we can off of you turkeys. And we did. We collected on the airborne radars of the fighters that came up, not only the MiG-17s, but there were some more advanced ones. And uh, we were collecting uh, on the ground-based radars that were doing the uh, vectoring. And there was a partner aircraft in the vicinity that was doing the comet collection on the same operation. Enough said about that. But when we had this painting done, I told the artist, he gave me a sketch, he said, I said, they never did that. The two MiG-17s, two whoever, would always be a pair off of, the, off of the wing. And he says, but you have to understand, I'm an artist. I need balance on my... Ah. So we, we got that MiG off there where he's not supposed to be. Incidentally, uh, another, another time I was up there, and this happened several, several times. The Swedes, of course, own the west side of the Baltic. They were a neutral nation, and they would come up and intercept us too, partially to keep us honest about flying over Sweden, I think, and also partly 
uh, as an indirect aid, at least, uh, uh, against the Soviets. One time when we flew up there, I remember personally, the two MiG-17s came out of the Soviet side. Two Draken Delta Wing interceptors came up from the Swedish side. Boy, did those MiG-17s get the hell out of there. <laughs> Didn't want to tangle with the Swedes. I don't blame them. And I've got stories about that, too. Uh, anyway, uh, it was a very valuable thing to have happened was, was, was these intercepts. It happened not just to us. It happened with all kinds of aircraft around the Soviet periphery, particularly the SAC collectors. And it happened in the Pacific to the, to the PACAF collectors as well. Uh, this was a major thing you had to contend with in the Cold War era. Another operation involving C-97s was, was an airplane that we nicknamed Creek Flea. And this happened in the early 60s. It was part of a CIA-directed project to help develop the new successor to the U-2 aircraft, uh, what eventually became the SR-71 through several iterations, and was not run by the CIA, but was run by the Air Force eventually. CIA wanted uh, a design that was stealthy as possible, but it needed to know about this humongous new threat, the SA-2 missile system that the Soviets had developed, the missile that had successfully shot down Francis Gary Powers and was beginning to be deployed around uh, uh, their periphery and their target areas, uh, including in the so satellite countries. And uh, it, they, they, they developed a system called the Precision Power Measurement System, PPMS, which was a fine grain ELIT collector. And don't get me ask, ask me any questions about this because I'm not that technical. But with this collection system on board, this particular C-97, you could collect really good information on the SA-2 missile systems on all their radars. The four red dots on the map there show you four SA-2 sites that you could fly directly over. The only part of the world where you could fly legally and safely over Soviet missile systems was in the Berlin corridors. This became very productive. Now, eventually the the CIA's version of what became the SR-71, and the SR-71 itself, were not particularly stealthy. But uh, this became unusually useful. Couldn't, have uh, couldn't perceive this in the early 60s. By the mid-60s, we are now at war in Southeast Asia. We're flying in North Vietnam, and our aircrafts were getting shot down all too often by Soviet SA-2 systems. And, of course, the other aircraft, uh, anti-aircraft systems, AAA, et cetera. Uh, what we were doing here was collecting information which allowed us to learn much more rapidly how to jam those SA-2 signals, how to deceive them, and most interestingly, how, how to develop missiles that could go air to surface and take the radars out. Standard Arm was the name of one of them. And this made it happen. I remember we were highly motivated to do these missions. I flew a bunch of them as a NAV, and uh, uh, we knew we were protecting our comrades in uh, Southeast Asia. Um, the aircraft itself with a dedicated crew went to Southeast Asia, flew out of Clark, Philippines in 1967 against the North Vietnamese SA-2 sites with that fine grain ELIT capability. However, comma, we, the, we didn't take that airplane over the north. <laughs> we kept it out over the Tonkin Gulf with fighter protection while we collected on their missile systems. And it worked out just fine. It told us a lot about what differences, if any, there were between the ones that North Vietnamese got and what the Soviets had. Project continued in the C-97 until 1975 and continued from then on, as I'll talk about in a minute or two. Imagery missions. 
Imagery now is a fancy word which covers not only photography, but infrared radar, uh, side-looking airborne radar, and such fancy gadgets as that. And that's beginning to happen in the, in the photo field as early as the 1950s. Okay, the 05th inherits the imagery birds from that 99th Squadron in 55 and soldiers on. It also inherits the operations of the Pi-Face C-97, which continued operations on and off until finally in 1962, summer of, uh, it was declared redundant and sent back to the boneyard. Two-thirds of the way back to the boneyard came the word of the Cuban Missile Crisis, October 1962. The aircraft was quickly diverted and became an unsung part of the intelligence collection process against the uh, Soviet uh, uh, problem in Cuba that we were facing. After the crisis died down somewhat, the aircraft was released and went on to its fate in the boneyard. Notice the photo here that shows uh, the Pi-Face aircraft at Tempelhof Airfield. Notice also the field elevation is 163 feet. Photography later, you'll see it as field elevation 164 feet. Somehow the Earth moved in Berlin. Okay. Um, and the imagery missions were again, they were, they were flown in a vague way like the ELIT missions, but they hugged the borders more closely for the peripheral missions. You can see the tracks again into the Baltic, uh, Adriatic, etc., down to Athens. Uh, other aspect of the imagery that happened was we got four of these T-29s that are down at the bottom. These are navigator training aircraft that are modified to look totally like courier aircraft. And indeed, that's what they were. We had an unclassified mission to carry uh, people and cargo, light cargo, up to Berlin. And it was widely publicized. So if you were a staff officer, you know, Major Bozo from USAFE headquarters, had to get up to Berlin, you'd go down to base ops and sign on and go in this airplane up to, up to uh, uh, Tempelhof. Do your thing. Now, what people weren't supposed to know was that in the back of the aircraft, behind the bulkhead there, uh, was a camera operator with some sophisticated systems getting vertical photography in the corridors. Uh, the loadmaster involved in giving you coffee and making sure your seatbelt was fastened was a highly qualified Army uh, uh, photo interpreter who knew the targets like the back of his hand. And he would sit in a blister and talk to the navigator about, oops, looks like some new activity that we need to monitor in so-and-so training area. Take some pictures. So they did. That kind of thing was happening. And Major Bozo and Mrs. Bozo or whoever uh, were uh, supposed to be totally unaware of that happening. C-97s, I've mentioned that in the, in the corridors, uh, taking imagery. One of them had a 66-inch focal length camera, another one 48-inch, and did uh, yeoman work throughout the, the uh, rest of its time in, in theater, up until 1975. Covert recon in the corridors. Uh, all other missions were supposed to be overt, like I mentioned. Uh, we wanted to keep these covert. We wanted to keep these quiet. We wanted to keep the Soviets either unaware of what we were doing or minimally aware and to a point where they wouldn't bother us. Uh, legally, we had the right to fly in the corridors. There was no specific prohibition against reconnaissance, but we didn't want to test them in a major crisis either. And we got this happening. The Soviets were fundamentally not deceived, though. And there's some examples I'll mention in a, in a minute or two. They tacitly accepted the mission, probably for a couple of reasons. One was the, the little quid pro quo, because we were tacitly accepting, without major protests for the most part, uh, Soviet Aeroflot aircraft, 
flying uh, on funny routes that happened to coincide with overflying NATO airfields in, in Western Germany and Belgium and places, and also even in the United States on supposedly Aeroflot routes. So there was a trade-off there, um, perhaps. There's also the thought that they would sometimes do stuff on the ground that they didn't seem to mind us taking pictures of. Uh, was an activity, like they were almost trying to tell us, this is how capable they were, so please don't attack us, because we'll whip your ass, uh, sort of thing. Like we were, some of the material we gave out was the same sort of message to them. Cold War, peculiar thing. Very rich target environment. Those red dots are just airfields. Uh, there were over 400 air, uh, targets that you could reach from the corridors, even with that 10,000 foot uh, uh, limitation. The, uh, this, this is our training areas, and there were a lot of them. These are just a couple of examples of them that you could collect on. You could overfly this one. This was a major training area, and there you could pick up on, on all kinds of ground tactics. Ground folks loved uh, imagery from the uh, training areas in, in that area. So it was a very rich target environment. This is a photo just, or it's a chart just of the area around Berlin to show you the targets we had in that area. The three blue circles are the three western airfields in West Berlin. Tempelhof here. Gatow, the British airfield, right on the edge of the, uh, the border with East Germany. And Tegel, the French airfield up here. All the red ones are Soviet targets, uh, East German targets that we were definitely interested in. And I could go on too long about what they were, but you can see the ring around Berlin. And this 20th Guards Army that you see the headquarters of in the northeast there, its main job, it, it was very evident in the coal, and if the Cold War turned hot, was to take these units and take West Berlin. I showed this once, this briefing with this graphic, uh, to a German audience in Berlin at a place called the Allied Museum. And you could see the gasp out of the Berliners. They were suddenly remembered uh, what it was like in the Cold War and what it could have been like. You know, they didn't need 1945 all over again. Uh, so uh, that was pretty impressive. Here's a couple of other vignettes. Those German civilians were at it with their cameras outside the borders of Tempelhof Airfield. And here are pictures they took of our aircraft, although they didn't know it was they were intelligence collection aircraft, over time. And uh, notice the uh, buildings here. Oops. Notice. Don't notice the buildings there. Let's get back here. Yeah. Down here and here, and here. It's the same location on an approach to runway 27. Notice this, the C-97 landing along that, that uh, avenue in uh, Berlin, heading towards uh, Tempelhof. And here's the view from the cockpit. Uh, this happened to be a nice clear day, 1959, from the pie face. You can see the approach to 27 left. And you can see, furthermore, there's those same apartment buildings here. Uh, an approach could take you down below the levels of those buildings. There's a similar series of buildings over here. Uh, so this was a major ground truce for flying into Tihoff. If the weather was rotten, too, uh, uh, sometimes the first view that you ever had of the airfield, if it was your first flight in as a pilot, would be that cemetery. And that's what's down here. Now, that's a graphic reminder of what could happen to you if you didn't stay on center line and, and, uh, and uh, keep the uh, correct altitude. Uh, I've seen pictures of it more or less as it is now. And darn it, that cemetery's uh, tree structure's all grown up. You can't see the cemetery anymore. Oh well, that's life. Okay, the collection operation went on. 
from 1976. That's when the 97s disappeared and went back to uh, various havens, including the Boneyard in the United States. And the O5th mission was basically concentrated on the corridor operations. They did some extra missions around, but it was mostly corridor from here on in. And it got three C-130s to do that mission. Uh, and the squadron moved to Rhine Mine and integrated itself, uh, at least in the open, with a purely airlift uh, C-130 outfit there. Got the same markings, uh, made it look every, everything like a normal C-130 airlifter. Uh, however, it was collecting imagery. And there you are uh, with, this, with a better sized uh, airframe, cargo compartment, with various palletized uh, compartments that you could put on board with the different uh, elements, photo, infrared, comment, ELET, et cetera. And uh, you can, to some degree, you could mix and match, but for the most part, it was pretty well fixed from airplane to airplane what they had. But it was, between the three of them, they covered the waterfront. Uh, these are the three airplanes involved. Uh, 1828, 19, and 22. These are all E models. And the code names, I don't want to bore you with too many details, but this shows you the, that there was lots of different interesting equipment on board these birds. FLIR, that's forward looking, looking infrared radar. Comet. RENT is a sort of an EWO function, which involves picking up uh, RWR signals. That's a uh, radar warning uh, systems on board airplanes. More on that if anybody's interested, but uh, I hope not because I don't know too much more than this. Uh, but it was an increasingly sophisticated operation that took place right up until uh, uh, the advent of the United Germany. Uh, and indeed, that did happen. Uh, first off, a group headquarters was created in 1977, the 75-75th, to operate this outfit and a basically unrelated squadron, special ops squadron, the C-130s at Rhine Mine. Uh, and that maintain control over those two squadrons. Joined by a third one, which was cloned from the 05th, the 7580th Ops Squadron, which was basically the back-enders of these 130s. Uh, it was so technical. They had so many maintenance people and uh, crows and, uh, and singers and so on that they had to have a separate unit for them. The last operational corridor mission was flown. You can see the date, 29 September 1990. Four days later, uh, a united Germany was to begin. The corridors would go away. The control of German airspace would revert to the new United Germany. And the need for this squadron would pass. Uh, there were still Soviet forces remaining to be watched, but the Germans took over the aerial surveillance that was necessary of those units until they finally left in 1994. Uh, these units, though, inactivated January 1991, and the units we're talking about then passed into history. Now, here's a photograph uh, it's actually a British photograph. The Brits and the French both had similar programs. Not as sophisticated as ours, but I managed to work deals with the British folks that have a briefing on theirs. Uh, and uh, if you want a totally crazy briefing sometime, General, with uh, all kinds of Britishisms, I, I can throw that at you and try and get the guy over from England to tell British jokes. It's, it's, it's a marvelous uh, outfit. Anyway. This is the sort of thing you could do. When you watch a ground forces unit for days, months, years, however often you wanted to take imagery, Schlotheim is in the south corridor and was the home of a Soviet motorized rifle unit. And here's what you could see. Over time, from the, given the vehicle types and so on, you could get out chapter and verse how that unit was organized. 
you can see it going off to training areas and so on. You can see if this was consistently vacant, what's it up to? And in two major crises, the Warsaw Pact invasion of Czechoslovakia in 68 and the almost invasion of Poland in 1981, um, these units vacated their, their garrisons. We didn't know anything about it until we saw this imagery. And in, in the case of Czechoslovakia, that unit was involved in the attack. Uh, in the case of the Polish one, uh, the Soviets were ready, perhaps, to do that sort of thing. That's what this imagery could do for you over time, both order battle and possible indications and warning. Here's an air defense battery outside its sheds at Bernau. And here's a, you know, AAA units and a TELAR. That's transporter elect. Uh, Erector Launcher Radar uh, acronym. Boy, the military loves acronyms. And uh, we Air Force types get upset with Army acronyms. They get upset with ours. One of those deals. But that's, uh, that's what those units were like. Notice the three soldiers off over here uh, watching uh, uh, this crazy airplane flying low level and getting its, its picture taken. Now, these are three examples of what you could do over time with with uh, targets, imagery targets. In this case, Kothan Airfield is in the south quarter. It was a major Soviet fighter base for most of the Cold War. And over time, if you watched it once a week or once every two weeks or in a crisis, maybe once a day, uh, you could see uh, the activity of the fighter unit involved, if it deployed or not, perhaps. Um, and also over time, you could check on construction. You could see uh, new buildings being erected or buildings being modified. Construction equipment may be repairing the runways. And if you watch, you could see how they repaired runways. And maybe you could figure out how to bomb those runways, that sort of thing. You can see in this particular example that over time, of course, they, they, they lengthened the runway considerably for modern fighters. And they built this ramp uh, apron area over here. That housed an attack helicopter unit when those were formed in the forward area in the uh, beginning in the late 70s. The SA-2 missile site photo there is generic. It's not from our unit, unfortunately. But it exemplifies what we, what we had. Uh, in the early days, late 50s, as the SA-2 was beginning to be deployed in the Soviet Union, we had very little coverage. It was just U-2 coverage. Uh, and then, of course, came the shoot-down, and that stopped. But in 1959, a year before that coverage, the Soviets deployed their first unit to the forward area, that is to East Germany, to a place called Glau. And what we saw happening at Glau in this imagery that we're, we were shooting was the beginnings of this. And the, at first we wondered, what the heck was this road construction like? And what's this going on? And what's this going on? Finally, it dawned on people it was some sort of AAA site. And then finally, we got actual missiles and missile launch devices in those, in those uh, relentments. And it became what we knew as the SA-2 uh, missile system. So we knew how an SA-2 system was built. And we could see that in other parts of the world as the system proliferated. Uh, the hardened aircraft shelter business. 1970s, mid-70s, mid the Soviets hardened their airfields, put these shelters up to shelter their aircraft like we were doing in the West. And uh, we could see these being built from ground up, day after day, week, month after month. And you could figure out from that how to bust them. And uh, we did that. We figured if the war ever came, we developed special munitions to go in there and take those shelters out and whack whatever was inside. Um, and this came to be practically useful in the desert storm operation because the Iraqis built their shelters to the same, to the same standard. Uh, and uh, thus, 
when it came time to take those shelters out, we had the munitions and we had the tactics down and we took them out. I think some of you may have seen photos of those shelters with big gaping holes in the roof structure. It's because of this collection. Now, I've got a couple stories to entertain you with uh, because uh, Dawn doesn't come, not, the, not that Dawn over there, but she's about to yank me off, off the stage, I think. Uh, but uh, I don't want Dawn to appear uh, in terms of the sun before I finish here. But uh, these are two stories that exemplify something, and I'll tell them and we'll see what happens. Encounter in the Antarctic Seas. What the heck is this about? We're talking about the Berlin Quarters. Okay, this is a post-Cold War story. It happens in the late 1990s. A retired Air Force officer and his wife take an Antarctic cruise, and they board a Soviet research vessel. This research vessel had been a former icebreaker and was designed uh, also for a collection against the United States East Coast. Uh, anyway, the Russian captain of the ship has its welcoming line to welcome the passengers on board, and it comes to our friend, I'll call him Tom Smith. Ah, oh, Mr. Smith, what did you do in your life? Well, I was in the U.S. Air Force. Oh, you were. What did you do? I was a navigator, and uh, he said, oh, my engineer officer is former Soviet fighter pilot. Would you like to talk with him? <laughs> of course. So the next thing we knew, uh, in the captain's cabin comes Tom Smith, Soviet fighter pilot, slant engineer, and an interpreter. And after a few minutes of basic stuff, and they started doing this, they didn't need the interpreter anymore. You know, the aviation guy's doing their thing. And... Uh, before long, a story comes out. Uh, Soviet pilot says, I understand you navigator, yeah? Uh, where did you fly navigator? I said, well, among other things, he said, was I'd flown courier missions in, in, uh, in, in West Germany, and including flights to Berlin. He said, oh, he said, which you fly, electric bird or photo bird? <laughs> uh, is the answer to that. Okay. So they knew Soviet pilot said, yes, I was stationed at Zerbst Airfield. There's that airfield here. Nope, nope, get back there, big fellow. Uh, there's the airfield here, right in the south corridor. Another airfield we could watch incessantly. And they, and especially in the late 50s, which is the era we're talking about here, they would launch airborne fighter patrols for daytime patrols off the, off the edge of the corridors, waiting for us to screw up and get out of the corridors and give them a chance to shoot us down. And he said that. We had orders to shoot you down. Aren't you lucky? Yes, I'm lucky. Thank you very much. Have another beer or whatever. And that was that story. Another was, I call it, the tale of the frozen antenna. Another illustration of the same thing. That Creek flea that's going against those special SAM targets uh, is flying in 1966 out of Wiesbaden into Berlin, trying to uh, catch these SA-2 radars. It's December 1966. It's cold. It's misty. Those of you who have never been in Germany at that time can understand. Temperatures at altitude are right around freezing. They take off one morning in this bird, like say it's a Tuesday, head up the south corridor. They flip a switch. Out comes various antenna out of the aircraft in order to do its collection operation. Fly the mission, get close to Berlin, start a descent, hit the switch to retract those antenna. Don't want the Soviets seeing it. And they don't retract. They don't retract. They're frozen in place. So what do you do? Modern version of that earlier thing I talked about. Ah, Berlin Control, Berlin Control. This is the 30106, and uh, I've got number three engine is out, and uh, request emergency heading back to the 
uh, West Germany via the center corridor. So it goes out, descends to below freezing level, eventually get the doors closed and land at Wiesbaden. Fly a mission the next day, same airplane, same thing happens. Uh, Berlin, this is 106, and uh, our number one engine is out today. Not a lot of <laughs> creative stuff here. Uh, and so it, uh, it has to abort and head out the west quarter, uh, central quarter. Next day, same thing happens. Airplane up the south corridor, frozen in place, can't get the antenna door shut. Ah, Berlin, number two engine, blah, blah, blah. Soviet controller in the Berlin Air Safety Center turns to his American counterpart and says, what's the matter with your spy plane? Let's see if we have engine problems. So there you are. Again, you know, they knew. We knew they knew. They knew we knew they knew. Uh, but it was one of those things you kept quiet. You didn't want Aviation Week to know. Well, that was fundamental. You didn't want to overly embarrass the Soviet Union. This was the, the motif of the time. You didn't want them to embarrass us. We didn't want us to embarrass them. So keep it quiet. Collect. Uh, that helps us, all, helps us uh, do our thing in the West, building better systems, deploying our people better, etc. Collecting intelligence. But... Uh, uh, but we need to do it quietly. So that's, that's those tales. And that effectively ends uh, my part of the briefing, except for one, one thing here, and that's a, uh, a thank you to the people involved. You notice I have had hardly any picture of actual people. And of course, it's what make things work like this are the people involved over those many years. Not just air crew, but the maintenance people, the supply people, the... Um, ground support equipment people, the whole bit uh, across the line, admin support, etc. We had thousands of people over time were just fulfilling those rules. Uh, I'd like to quote a crew chief on a C-97. I think we tend to overlook the officers and airmen who, kept, who keep our aircraft going. To fly an aircraft like the C-97, it takes a maintenance team that's dedicated and knows the aircraft inside and out. I feel a well-trained maintenance staff is the backbone of any flying squadron. And any air crew member I ever knew would heartily second that. The most rewarding comment I ever received was from the wife of a long-retired pilot. Quote, thank you for the safe aircraft you supplied my husband. Unquote. And that's basically the end of my talk. Thank you very much. <laughs>